I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. I am coming from the American Atheist Convention in Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm joined today uh, by Mohammed Syed and Hina Dadaboy. Nailed it on the first try. Good job. Thank you. It was, I was very stressed out about pronouncing your name correctly because I think that's a shitty thing to do is mispronounce a person's name. Um, so you guys came in. You had a panel earlier today. It's Saturday of the convention, but April yes. 4th-ish. Um, uh, and you did a, an ex-Muslim panel. Is yes. that right? So do you guys want to give a little background on who you are and um, kind of what brought you here today? All right. Well, um, I have been blogging and speaking on the National Atheist Stage for a couple of years now. I started in late 2011, I believe. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always talked about various issues, but always as the, from the lens and the perspective of an ex-Muslim. And I think that's part of why, you know, people start paying attention because, you know, I'm the inexpensive ex-Muslim to bring in, unlike the <laughs> keynote yesterday. So, you know, that's kind of how I got started. And then... When Ex Muslims in North America started, I joined, um, and yeah, that's kind of I guess where Muhammad would come in and talk about your so, program. Yeah. I'm one of the founders of Ex Muslims in North America. We started about 18 months ago. Um, we launched primarily. The main point was there are lots of Ex Muslims out there, and they're usually alone. A lot of people don't want to be found out. They're worried about the consequences, mm-hmm. so they don't reach out to other people and it's hard to connect with people that are in hiding. Mm-hmm. So we tried to change that dynamic, and we've been building communities in various cities. We're in about 15 cities right now. Mm-hmm. It's seriously, you know, it's been such a sea change, because when I first came out as an atheist nine years ago, I Googled ex-Muslim, and I found all these Christian groups about how they hate Allah and they love Jesus now. And I'm Oof. like, that's good. I'm glad you're happy, but that's not what I want. Yeah. And it's so different now, you know, with ex-Muslims in North America. And last year I was at SSA East and SSA West, and both times I met ex-Muslims who were just students. And, you know, they're the next the next mm-hmm. wave of this. And so it's it's been so different. I mean, and if you think about this year, we had our ex-Muslims panel. Mm-hmm. Asif Muhyiddin, who's... Um, a, a Bengali blogger okay. spoke right after us, and he survived a very vicious attack mm-hmm. on his life because of his blogging. Mm-hmm. And then yesterday, the keynote, the big draw was Ayan Hirsi Ali, who is an ex-Muslim, probably the most famous one yeah. living possibly today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's this is probably the most ex-Muslim representation at any conference ever, and this is one of the bigger ones. So it's just really exciting to watch it all unfold. Uh-huh. I feel like it's happening so fast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Around uh, two, two and a half years ago is when the whole thing started on my end. And uh, I met one of the other people involved with this, Sarah. And she said that she had never, ever met anybody else. She actually didn't believe that I was an ex-Muslim because they don't really exist. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's how this all snowballed that we, I met her and I was shocked that she thought that. So we went out to find more people. Uh-huh. And then a snowball, we found a bunch of people that were very interested and were very alone. So mm-hmm. for a long time, like we started having meetings in DC, and we had people come to meets, and every meet you had somebody cry. Because, uh, for example, this guy in his 20, late 20s um, had left religion eight years ago and never spoken to anybody at all about it. Mm-hmm. And to come into a room, there were like 20, 30 people that understand exactly where he's coming from, it yeah. blew him away. And we've had that happen again and again. Yeah, I mean, as involved as I am, and you know, I met my first ex-Muslim online. I did have a lot of online friends, mostly in England. Mm. They have Council of Ex-Muslims over there and everything. 
But um, the first time I met an ex Muslim in person, it was so beautiful. He joined my local atheist group and he sent me a friend request. And I'm like, who is this guy? I thought maybe he was some like Muslim person from my past and I would not add him on Facebook then. <laughs> but then no, he turned out to be both. <laughs> he, he grew up in the same community as me and we ended mm -hmm. up being friends. But still, that moment that I had last May when we had, we had an ex-Muslim party and I was in DC for that and I walk into this party and it's like mostly ex-Muslims, like 90% of the people there. It's a diff, it's, I had goosebumps oh, straight so up. Cool. So what makes it, I mean, obviously leaving any religion is difficult. What are the particular challenges an ex-Muslim would, would face? Um, so to start off with, uh, you're not, you're never told that it's possible to leave. There's this, you once Muslim, you're always a Muslim. It's mm -hmm. the truth, you never walk away. The other thing is, the few things you hear are cases like Ayan Hirsi Ali, where if you say anything, you are killed. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge incentive not to say anything because you feel like you're crazy for thinking these thoughts to begin with. As a child, you're told that questioning anything is wrong and bad and we mm -hmm. can't go in that direction. So very few people, I'm willing to bet there are a lot more people out there that are leaning towards this, mm -hmm. but they don't realize that there are lots of other people like them out there. Yeah. So starting the conversation goes a long way, and that's what we've seen. Mm -hmm. And what an additional challenge, I think, is a lot of the times Muslims come out of cultures that are generally more collectivistic. Yes. They're about community and family and loyalty. And so it's almost like turning your back on your family and your background. And it, actually the biggest struggle with my family, although they've come around a lot, was to convince them that just by leaving Islam didn't mean I didn't love them, care about them, and want to be part of their lives. And that I could be respectful of, of, of their religion for the sake of peace, which I think we all have to make concessions sometimes, even me. <laughs> and I think another thing too, like what Muhammad was saying, it's just not presented as a possibility. Yeah. You know, I, I remember hearing about a former Muslim or even people who don't renounce Islam but who blaspheme or whatever. And my parents would tell me, oh, they're just paid Zionist agents or something out to make Islam look bad. And it's just, it never comes to mind. Plus, I think the everyday aspects of being a Muslim, you know, you don't just go to church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. You live your life very differently. And so your belief is being reinforced by ritual day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And to imagine your life without it, for me at least, I looked at my life and I thought, okay, if I left this behind, what would I have? Mm -hmm. You know, my future was determined. I was going to marry young, all those things that most good Muslim girls are supposed to do. I wore a headscarf. I didn't know how to do my hair for the longest time. I mean, these just basic life things. It's like, okay, well, what now? Yeah. And that can be enough incentive to keep you in a religion sometimes. We yeah. have multiple people that left Islam but didn't take the headscarf off because it was, often people start wearing it, it's forced on them when they're like seven, eight years old. And your whole identity is tied up into wearing that and taking it off is traumatic. So It, it would be like, you know, asking someone to take their top off yeah, and just absolutely. walk around. It was weird. And I actually wasn't forced into it. I mean, my parents would have. Had I not worn it, they probably would have pressured me. Uh -huh. But I decided to do it of my own free will when I was like 10 as much free will as you do have at 10, I guess. Right. <laughs> and yeah, you know, it's, it, it does become an identity thing. And a lot of Muslim women will argue that, you know, it's not actually sexist. It's actually resisting patriarchal norms and beauty culture and all that. And so, you know, you, you get who you are gets tied up into it. You know, people knew me as like that loud girl in the scarf. You know? <laughs> and now you're the loud girl with curly hair. Yes. So. The, the, the person who gets into fights on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, and I think, um, I think the whole athe atheist movement really is hinging so much on the internet because were it not for that, like how 
would people find each other, especially in something like Islam where... I don't think they would. It, it would have been impossible. Yeah. So a lot of our recruitment is through online channels, through mm-hmm. forums, through, through Facebook. Um, it would be virtually impossible, in my opinion, for something like this to actually happen. Yeah. Because, I mean, how do you know who to talk to? Whereas, you know, when I first became an ex-Muslim, I created a pseudonym, and I would go to places and look for other people. And there was, there's no way to do that in real life. You get... I mean, you get hints from people sometimes, mm-hmm. like they're looking for something, but it's such a big thing to say. You know, even my liberal relatives, when, I, when they found out I was an atheist, like they freaked out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had experiences where um, husband and wife didn't tell each other because they were concerned about the consequences. So Islamically, um, if one person leaves the religion, the wedding is null and void. Mm-hmm. Uh, the marriage is canceled, so you can't say that. We've had cases where siblings didn't tell each other. An elder sibling left didn't tell the younger sibling. Uh, two years later, the younger sibling found out and was furious that why didn't you tell me and tried to reconvert them We've and had failed. family reunions on ex-Muslims in North America. Yeah. I've seen it on the Facebook page. Oh, my we God. We were like, hey, bro, hey, sis, what's up? Like, <laughs> oh, man. I think it's really interesting because you both, or I think you more so use the term ex-Muslim as opposed to atheist. And because that's always going to be a part of, I mean, obviously you have used both, but I think that's interesting that like, I don't hear a lot of people say like, oh, I'm an ex-Christian or an ex-Catholic. Do you um, think that like, regardless of whether or not you follow Islam, it's, it's just become such an ingrained part of who you are? No, I wouldn't say that. It's more of a political statement in the sense that oh. um, if you're an atheist, atheism is regarded as a Western white person phenomena. Oh. To root it in the fact that we are coming from these cultures and we are standing up and saying that this is not okay and we're rejecting these norms. Uh-huh. Um, and also, not in, in the West, it's much easier to do that. Um, in other countries, like Asim Hoyuddin, you're attacked, you're killed. Mm-hmm. So it's more also a political statement from the perspective of we're standing together with all of these people around the world that are suffering. Oh, interesting. And the another, I think, aspect of the politics of it, it's a concession to the fact that, you know, coming from a Muslim background gives you a different perspective, you know, and it, it does, it's less that it's ingrained in you and more that it has, it's a part of who you are, whether you like it or not. Yeah. You know, you're still going to occasionally, like, if you have a certain um, physical description, people are still going to see you as quote-unquote Muslim mm-hmm. or Arab and get mad at you whenever there's a terrorist attack or something. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, to me, that's part of it, too. It's a concession to, yeah. I mean, like my mother told me, she, when I became an atheist, she had a serious conversation where she said, if you think that you can just become an American like any white person and just blend in forever, that's never going to happen. And she's right about that. Uh-huh. And to me, that's a, an acknowledgement, too. I mean, because some people want to say cultural Muslim or things like that mm-hmm. as a way to make that concession. I don't like that because it basically still marks me as Muslim, which I'm not. Right. I've, I've renounced Islam. But ex-Muslim helps me to do that in a way that it acknowledges and yet renounces at the same time. Very interesting. Um, going back to the cultural Muslim term, I personally object to the term because... It's an imperialistic term. If you look at, uh, for example, England conquered half the world, mm-hmm. and if now are all of those cultures supposed to call themselves British cultures? Mm. Um, similarly, Islam conquered all of these other countries, Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Morocco. They're spread uh, from the coast of Africa to the coast of the Paci- like, uh, Atlantic to the Pacific. Uh-huh. Um, all of these cultures are very, very different cultures. Pakistani culture and Saudi culture and Indonesian culture have very little in common except for they pray the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're playing into an imperialistic ideal by saying cultural Muslim. I'm culturally Pakistani. Uh-huh. I definitely agree with that, especially since, you know, 
one of the big problems we do have with talking about Islam in a way that's going to move the conversation forward is people perceiving Muslims as this entity rather than different cultures and different people and things like that. So yeah, it's it's definitely more helpful to not think of Islam as a culture. I sometimes call them Islam-flavored cultures. Because, <laughs> you know, you do get that Islam vibe from them, but they're, but they're all different. They, uh-huh. they manifest in very different ways. Yeah, interesting. Um, so what are the challenges, I mean, besides the obvious, like what are the different challenges of somebody leaving Islam in America versus not even necessarily in like Saudi Arabia or something like that, but like even Britain or something like that. What are the cultural differences there? I can speak to that a little because I actually spent a year of my childhood in what we call Londonistan. Um, I have a lot of relatives there. Hi guys, if you're listening. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but um, over there, there's a lot more of the ethnic enclave thing going on where they'll all move to the same neighborhood and mm-hmm. even public schools are just full of other Muslims mm-hmm. and they live very isolated, insular lives. And so the, the Islam that comes out of Europe, it reflects that, where there's definitely a little bit more of an aggression and uh-huh. policing and things like that. I mean, almost every, like wearing the headscarf is so common there. Even the more like, you know, girls will be like out, you know, having sex in cars, but they're wearing headscarves and things like that, you know, whereas here in the U.S., like, it's not super common. Mm-hmm. It's it's way more police. It's way of a, more of a strong identity. Whereas here, you know, the Muslim, and part of that is economic, too. Over there, there's a lot more Muslim refugee populations. Here, there are Muslim refugee populations, but that's not the majority. The majority was people who immigrated during, um, like, the parents immigrated in the 70s mm-hmm. when they allowed more Asian immigration and things like that. So, yeah. you know, socioeconomically, it's different, and also just culturally, it's different. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say in England, it's actually, they have a strong, like, they have a pretty strong council of ex-Muslims because of that. But it's definitely, I would say, a little bit scarier because I have friends out there and, you know, some of them don't even say where they live and things like that, whereas I feel way more comfortable. I don't, I don't so, think. Uh, yeah. to, how about the Council of Ex-Muslims? So they started about six, seven years ago. They've largely been doing advocacy work. What we've been doing is we're doing ad- we do advocacy as well, but we're trying to build communities to try to create a larger community of ex-Muslims to stand up. Uh-huh. And when we started, a uh, similar group started in London as well. Um, they're also uh, organizing as Muslims. They have regular meets, um, and they haven't come out publicly. Mm-hmm. Like we started an organization, we're expanding rapidly mm-hmm. because of the fact that they're far more afraid of the consequences of coming out. Yeah. So we've been urging them: you need to launch an organization, become more public. That'll uh, increase the, your standing, and you'll be able to do a lot more. But a lot of people that are involved in that are scared of what will happen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, at your panel today, um, I think it was Susan Blackmore asked what I thought was a really compelling question regarding um, she felt like it was very difficult to criticize Islam because she would often be called a bigot or something like that. Can you guys speak on that a little bit? Because you said something that um, I really, that really stuck with me about. um, Oh yeah, the offense line. Yeah. Yeah, because she mentioned that, you know, I'll criticize Islam and, you know, and people might get offended. And I said, well, just because someone's offended doesn't mean that you said a bigoted thing. Right. Just means that they were offended. Right. And, you know, there are instances of people who criticize Islam or they claim they're criticizing Islam, but they're really just repeating racist tropes. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that happens. But there's also the problem of people being accused of being a racist just for criticizing Islam. Right. People claiming you can't criticize Islam because, you know, minority religion or whatever. And, you know, obviously both of us here think that's kind of a crock. Right. But, you know, it's, you can, you can criticize Islam without being a bigot. 
I, I can't say, though, that you can criticize Islam without being called a bigot. Sure. Because I've been told that I'm Islamophobic merely for existing. So what do you say to that other than, I'm sorry you feel that way? Yeah. And that, I don't know, that feels insincere. Because, you know, we've all seen when, like, somebody says something stupid on Twitter or something like that, and they do that, like, half-ass apology. Like, oh, I'm sorry you're offended. But at the same time, like, what are we going to say? Like, if I look at tenets of Islam and say, well, like, women don't seem to be treated super well there, and somebody calls me Islamophobic, sorry There's a difference between you're saying that Muslims... Um, across the board are bad to women Mm -hmm. versus aspects of the ideology are bad for women, aspects of the ideology are Mm -hmm. misogynistic. So you need to be a little more focused on what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, Definitely you can point out that there are a certain percentage of Muslims that adhere more closely to that ideology. There are parts of the Quran that, uh, for example, for inheritance say that women get half the inheritance. There are parts of the Quran that expressly call for wife beating. Um, It's a patriarchal religion. Any 7th century ideology, 1st century ideology is going to be patriarchal. (laughs) So we need to acknowledge that. Yeah. And that's really, you know, something we've been talking a lot about this weekend. Ayan Hirsi Ali talked about it. We talked about it. You know, Asif talked about it. It's the idea of reform. And, you know, and that's really, I think, where reform comes from. It's an honest acknowledgement of the problems with it Mm -hmm. and taking them on head on. And that's something that, you know, it's been a theme really this weekend. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I'm very hopeful about is, for the first time, we're starting to see academic research about this. Um, oh, yeah? There's people doing research about the history of Islam versus a specific topic. Um, so you can figure out... So apologetics, you can say that this never happened. Um, the wife-beating thing I mentioned. Uh, if you talk to a modern, enlightened Muslim, they may say that it's a mistranslation. You don't understand Arabic. Versus if you do an academic study of what did the scholar say for the past 1,500 years, uh-huh. you can get a very clear picture of what actually happened. Uh-huh. Um, if, say, 780, most scholars said that you're not allowed to do this, and later it showed up, then it's very clear that it's a later edition. It's not part of Islam. Mm-hmm. But if all the scholars from, say, 700 to 1,700 said that, yes, it's okay to beat your wife, yeah. and it's very obviously a core part of that, that we're changing now. We're reflecting egalitarian values back to what Islam was. So academic studies of those na- nature are happening now in various colleges. I also think there's more and more books being written about Islam that are neither attacking nor fawning over it, um, sort of laying out the facts yeah. of this Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm hoping to do. I have a book coming out in December called A Skeptic's Guide to Islam. Um, and, yeah, it's, and that's kind of what I'm doing with it. It's to inform people about Islam, but from a perspective that isn't trying to preach at you, but also not trying to be like, Muslims are the worst, let's bomb them all. Because for a while, that was your choice. You know, even the Western written biographies of Muhammad and stuff, they were fawning all over him. Mm -hmm. You know, all these like, oh, he was so great. No, no, not really. I don't know about that. But yeah, there's more factual, more historical, more objective things coming out. And yeah, yeah, it is really, it's, it's. Definitely making me that will be a game changer in my opinion. Yeah. So a lot of facts about Islam I did not know of growing Muslim. Mm. So um, people talk about, for example, uh, the sacredness of Makkah and the Kaaba being very holy. Um, there have been three separate instances in the past where it was blown up by Muslims. They had a civil war, they blew it up. There was another civil war, they blew it up. There was um. another one where they came in, they bombarded it and took pieces of it away and ransomed them for money. <laughs> So we, if we know this history, we understand that it, 
what we think about the past is largely romanticized past. It's not the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, you, no kidding. I mean, not long before I left Islam, this is maybe a year before, I took a, a course run by a group called Alim, and they consider themselves very intellectual Muslims. Mm-hmm. And they, t- uh, they approach religion with a deconstructive approach, except to the point of doubting the truth of the Quran. Okay. So, but they deconstructed everything else. But they told us all about all the civil wars that happened. Like, literally, the second Muhammad died, there was civil war and strife. And, you know, we didn't learn that in Islamic school. Uh-huh. We were taught, oh, all the Sahaba, which means like the companions of the Prophet, his community, they all were great and perfect. And, and then as it turns out, right after he died, they all turned on each other. His own, his youngest wife, Aisha Muhammad, had a civil war with his cousin Ali. Like, not that long after he died. And no one ever told me that. I know his I own did. daughter basically died six months later yeah. because she was treated horribly, she had, they broke into her house and she was pregnant and had a miscarriage as a result. And if they're treating Muhammad's daughter that way, yeah. right after he passed away, yeah. how holy was the entire paradigm to begin with? It's pro- he was probably holding it together with yeah. the cult of personality. Sure. You see that happen all the time. But for some reason, this particular one survived. Who knows why? Yeah, it's <laughs> really interesting. But I think that's, I feel like I see that theme across a lot of religions is that people don't know their own history. People just don't. Like, you can tell somebody that's in, somebody something that's in the Bible, and they've just never done their due diligence. Um, it's, I would say, a far more severe. It's like you don't, the Inquisition never happened. Yeah. Uh, like, they just a, never acknowledged it. So, uh. all of these major events that have happened, um, horrible wars, um, even genocides are not acknowledged at all. And right now, the Afghan war and that border area of Pakistan and Afghanistan is very volatile. Uh-huh. Um, that was the first part of India that was conquered. When it was conquered, they took hundreds of thousands of slaves from that area to the point where the global market, the price of slaves globally plummeted. Um, wow. it, was, it shot down to two dinar at that point. And these, their descendants are the ones that are now fighting for Islam. So, but I, and that's another thing that people will constantly either vote in, against their own interest or promote something that is absolutely like objectively bad for them. And I just, I mean, I don't know, is it a brainwashing thing or is it a. I think it's just like essentially people, I think we're, we have less free will than we think we do. Yeah. We're all so influenced by the cultures around us. Yeah. And I actually, when I first left Islam, I got a lot of Muslims telling me that. The only reason you left is because, you know, you're born in the West and, you know, all your skepticism is a Western construct, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that's true, but the same is true for you. Yeah. It's just as true for you as for me. And it's not a way to say I'm wrong. Yeah. Or it's hard for somebody to talk to somebody and say, like, listen, you are probably... Muslim because you were born here or your parents were born here. You're probably Catholic because your family is from here. And were it not for the incidents of where you happen to be born, you would have a completely different belief system. But that's impossible for somebody to digest if they believe so strongly in whatever their One of the things that, like the ultimate question that made me admit that I had left Islam, because for a while I, my intellectually I was already an atheist, but I couldn't admit it. The real thing that got to me, yourself or to to anybody to even myself just in my heart, but what really the question I asked myself that made me go oh was had I not been born into a Muslim family mm-hmm. would I have found Islam compelling enough to convert to it? Mm-hmm. And the answer was oh no, 
And, of course, people do convert to Islam, although sure. I think they need to keep better statistics on people who leave, yeah. mm-hmm. because apparently that's super common for people in the West to convert to Islam and then leave a couple of years later. Oh, really? I, this guy I know from writing, nothing to do with religion or lack of religion or whatever, it turned out he lived in my very region in the 90s and converted to Islam for a while. He told me all of it. I was like, no way. You and know, then left? Yeah. There are many people in our group that are ex-Muslims that converted for one yeah. reason or the other. Oh, interesting. Is, so is that a different kind of conversation yeah. to have? Because you don't have familial yeah. pressures or things like that? Is that? Yeah, but they still understand. Like, they get yeah. it because they've sure. been steeped in the community. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I'm actually surprised that more people don't... I mean, there's a simple fact when it comes to religion. Most people are born into the religion they're going to die in. Yeah it's not really that much of a choice as, as believers want to make it out to be. You know, mm-hmm. I choose to be saved or, you know, I choose to submit to a lot more, yeah. really. Or, like, uh, Catholics get, I grew up in a pretty Catholic area, but they get uh, conf- confirmation. And you, like, supposedly it's you as a quote-unquote adult deciding to dedicate. And they're fucking they're 13 years old. Like, the stupid shit I did when I was 13, like, I'm not committing to the rest of my life or anything. But, it, but they do it. I think that's a powerful thing if you're given the illusion of you chose this, you picked this. It's, it's uh, the sunk cost fallacy. Yes, yes. It's exactly what it is. It's, you're going to keep throwing good money after bad uh-huh. and just stay invested. And frankly, that's why a lot of the people I know who are still Muslim, despite you know having thought about all these things, are still Muslim because they don't want to give up something that they've invested so much in. Or to think back, I'm like, oh, I've wasted 30 years of my life doing, you know, X, Y, and Z every day or every week, and that was all for naught, it's got to be scary. And I'm not, I think this is all interesting because I'm not, I wasn't really raised in religion, so I, hearing about people, like, that's such a huge shift in your life and in your family and, and everything. But it's the same thing with a bad, any bad relationship. You know, you can yeah. say, oh, I've had five, we've had five years, maybe three of those were good. Uh-huh. But those, those two bad years are not somehow compensated for by the three good years. Right. You know, you don't want... Again, it's the sunk cost fallacy. It just yeah. goes back to that. But, you know, people have this mentality, even about relationships. They're like, yeah. well, I've been with him for 10 years, and maybe things haven't been that great, but it's been 10 years, and it's your failure if you end it. Yeah. But it's okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no. I, yeah, I think that's... I, I, and it's great that we, like, celebrate when people have been married for 50 years or something like that, but I'm like, I don't know if you had... 30 years of a shit marriage and, like, 20 happy years. Like, oh, I don't know. I guess that's good. And, you know, same thing with religion. Okay, like, if anyone's listening who's having these thoughts, you know, that, oh, I spent all this time. I don't think of my time as a very devout Muslim is wasted. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot. I did the best that I could. Mm-hmm. But now I'm having a much better life. Yeah. And the sooner you get out of it, the sooner you can get into that much yeah. better life. And also, you don't know what kind of cause and effects happen like because you were raised a certain way speaks very much to how you are now for better or for worse and had that not been a part of your life who knows where you'd be now but um let's see what time adding on to uh, that one of the other issues is your social network in the sense that leaving religion there are lots of costs you may lose your family and if your family is accepting your family may lose extended family your family because you allowed this to happen to your kid, you're a bad family, therefore all the community needs to cut off ties with your entire family. So as a child, you don't want to have your parents go through that. They're, they're relatively older, they, they can't rebuild those connections. It's hard enough yeah. as somebody that's young to do that. 
Do you feel like thinking of people you know in your own life, do you think were it not for those kinds of consequences that are far reaching beyond your personal consequences but that affect your family? Do you think you know people who'd probably have left Islam as yeah, well? Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know I know some closet cases that and that's why. And do and they, they admit it like out loud? Oh, no, and they, they just some of them have admitted it to me, people yeah. that I know. And they, they're like, Well, we saw what happened to you. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I'm fine now. Things are way better than yeah. I could have ever expected. But it was not easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a couple of really hellish years in there. Yeah. And, you know, I don't wish that on anybody. Yeah. Even though if more people came out, it would make it easier every time. That's true. So with our community, I would say, like, close to 10% of people are public. After that, the second group is uh, people that are okay personally with being public, but the consequences to people they love like uh, their wife's family or their own family yeah. or the larger community, they can't do it because they don't want others to go to suffer for them. Yeah, I didn't know the thing about the your marriage is void if one person leaves the religion. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, because Muslim men are allowed to marry Jewish or Christian women. Um, How nice for them. <laughs> yeah, Muslim women are, are only allowed to marry Muslim men, which is why you get the phenomenon I affectionately refer to as Cupid's Muslims. <laughs> the guys who go in, they say the Declaration of Faith, so technically they're Muslim, even though they don't mean it half the time. Uh-huh. And then they get the Islamic marriage, and bam, it's all good. Uh, kind of. Yeah. I mean, they, they do get scrutiny and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it, it is true that I, I know some ex-Muslims who, who aren't out because they don't want to lose their spouse. Although sometimes you hear about people who both leave Islam and keep it from each other for, you know, a year or two, and then they finally find out. They're like, oh, okay. Oh, they should make a movie about that. <laughs> actually, like that would be movie. a really sweet... Oh, I, I actually know an ex-Mormon couple like that, too. Where they both independently became atheists, and then one found the other's, like, browser history or something, and something like, oh, have you been having doubts? Me too. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Um, okay, so um, it's been about a half hour. So um, you've got a book coming out when? December. December. It's through Pitchtone Publishing. It's called Skeptic's Guide to Islam. Congratulations I'm on that. That's away. exciting. Thank you. It's, it's, it's well behind production schedule because life. <laughs> but, yeah, I've been, I've been very accountable with my editor lately, so yay. Good. Um, yeah, Pitch, Pitchtone is basically the atheist public publishing company. Okay. Um, is there a pre-order or anything that people can find? Or do you there was to... a Kickstarter. Okay. Sorry, backers. I know I'm still late, but <laughs> a hard date has been set. But uh, yeah, no, eventually there will be pre-orders okay. when it gets closer to the time of. Cool. Um, do you actually, we'll talk about that off mic. Um, and can we get a hold of you anywhere, Mohammed? Um, do you have a website or anything? Yeah. Or Twitter? For Ex-Muslims of North America, our website is www.exmna.org. Um, we list all of our staff over there. You can contact anybody directly. And if you're an ex-Muslim listening, contact us. We'll get you in touch with other ex-Muslims in your area. And they can depend on anonymity, right? Yes. If they're not comfortable being oh, out. Most people are closeted. We're very careful about that. Okay. Um, and then I'm on the Free Thought Blogs Network under the name Heinous Dealings. Um, there are other ex-Muslims on Free Thought Blogs, too. There's Taslima Nasreen and uh, Mariam Namazi. And so they're well worth checking out as well. So there's plenty of resources for somebody who's trying to get out. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.